This podcast on a subject pressing in the UK, Europe and across the world was recorded in front of a very engaged audience in central London in October 2020 and is part of a series of events the Aspen Institute in the UK is hosting with the EU delegation to the UK. I hope you find it compelling as we did. Good, hello. Welcome to this event. It's called Governing the Gatekeepers Competition in the Digital Economy. We're looking at one of the most pressing subjects of our time and a subject that is dear to the heart of both the European Union and the British government. So just an incredibly timely subject. And we have an extraordinary panel who are incredibly versed in this topic to talk to us. So thank you so much. I'm Penny Richards. I'm the head of the Aspen Institute here in the UK. Our institute in the UK and in the US and across the world actually believes in the importance of dialogue. Hence the extraordinary people to here today. Dialogue, conversations have always been central to the Institute's founding ethos. The Aspen Institute is the youngest in the global network of Aspen Institutes and all of us use our convening power to have conversations we hope and think will edge conversations and therefore policies and society further to a better place. We run both public programmes where we bring diverse voices together to discover to discuss some of the most important issues of our time and also private programmes where we do the same to encourage significant leaders in the UK to learn from other people who have different views, different life experiences, different backgrounds and different beliefs. Uh, today is no exception. I'm not sure everyone's going to agree entirely on our future way forward, but we're hoping we'll get to some consensus by the end. The Aspen Institute has a wonderful partnership with the European Union delegation in London where we help bring some of their, their issues to life in, in their public programmes. And so it's incredibly nice to be able to introduce the um, Deputy Ambassador to the European Union delegation here, Nicole Mannion, who's just going to say a few words about today and other things. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Penny, uh, for that lovely introduction, and um, good afternoon, everyone. You're very welcome to Europe House, especially those of you who are here for the first time. Um, as Penny said, um, we have a long-standing partnership with Aspen, and this is the latest in a series of events that we have hosted uh, about kind of crucial issues in the EU-UK relationship. Uh, and our goal, uh, as Penny mentioned, is to create a dialogue around those issues between the key stakeholders, because we think that's very important now uh, as we go forward in our new relationship post-Brexit. Um, so today's topic, of course, is competition in digital markets, a very interesting and important topic. And I'm really glad to see so many of you here uh, because it is a very important thing that we discuss. Um, a few words about how we see digital markets. Um, clearly, they play a very crucial role uh, for both EU and UK citizens and our common prosperity. And across the world, regulators and policymakers have come up with proposals on how to make uh, a competitive, safe and fair online environment that also safeguards users' fundamental rights. The UK and the EU, I think, are two very good examples of that. Um, obviously, we have the UK Digital Market Unit, uh, and we also have the EU Digital Market Act, uh, which I think our, our stakeholders today will, will discuss. Um, these regulations will impact both EU and UK citizens. They will force business to adjust for the benefit of society, and digital consumers will also be affected by those changes. And finally, competition authorities, of course, will have to also equip themselves in order to get ready for that big task. So there are many challenges to achieving these objectives, and we very much look forward to hearing our speakers' perspectives on this. 
So uh, without any further ado, I shall leave it there. I shall just say thank you very much, Penny and Aspen, once again for organising uh, this event. And thank you especially to our speakers and our moderator. We have our DG uh, from uh, the European Commission Director General for Competition, Olivia Gersin. We have um, uh, Professor Emily Fletcher from Norwich Business School and Niall McKenzie from BEIS. So I will leave you in the very capable hands of our moderator, Tamsin, uh, who is a partner in the Brunswick Group as well. So best of luck with the discussions and I look forward to hearing all about it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Nicole. Um, let's um, crack straight on with the discussion um, next. Um, I'm um, yeah, Tamsin Booth. I'm at uh, Brunswick Group. I used to be at The Economist for a couple of decades covering um, tech companies and um, before that being the business editor. And we've, we've had a little bit of introduction already, but um, just a bit more detail. Um, Neil McKenzie, Director of Consumers and Competition at Bayes, the Department for Business um, Industry um, and Industrial Strategy. Um, we have with us also Amelia Fletcher, who's Professor of Competition Policy at the um, at Norwich Business School um, and, a, and a real expert on competition policy, sits on lots of um, different bodies as a non-executive director of the CMA. And um, I, I have to note for the benefit of the audience that... Um, Amelia in her field is regarded as an absolute rock star, and she's also literally um, a rock star. Um, please Google uh, Tallulah Gosh, the, uh, the indie music scene. Or should I say in this context, please duck, duck, go, uh, Tallulah, Tallulah Gosh. Um, and we also, of course, have Olivier Garçon, um, Director General of DG Comp in Brussels, who I've just discovered also used to be in a band. Um, so the, the, the <laughs> there's, a, there's a common theme there. So we're going to have four... Um, main areas to talk about to, to cover what's a pretty big topic of governing the, the governing the gatekeepers. Um, we'll start with the, the really the key differences between the EU um, and the UK approaches. Um, well, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of detail there. Then we'll also talk about what's at stake. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, sometimes it feels as if legislation, regulation just gets rolled out, but there's actually a lot that can go wrong. There's a lot of kind of different scenarios that um, could could um, could take place in the future. I think a particularly interesting bit of this is enforcement. Um, you know how how that works in practice once once these um, regulations actually go into force. Um, how that plays out, and also in a particular interest for me, interest for me because I've been covering um, the, the the big five um, tech companies while at the Economist is kind of how are they going to react, how are they going to try and kind of game um, any differences in in regulations, how you know are they going to fight, um, cooperate? Um, I think that's a really important area as well. So we'll talk for we'll have the discussion for about forty minutes, and then we'll have um, Q and A. Uh, a good bit of Q&A at the end, so please do um, prepare your questions and be ready to go with those. Um, so I think the, the, first, um, the first area to get on with, and I'll, I'm going to ask you, um, uh, Amelia, is would you be able to lay out for all of us kind of what are the key differences between um, the DMU, the, the UK's, kind of body that is that is going to be coming into into existence and the DMA which is kind of you know already out there 
Of course, um, and of course, um, Olivier and, and Neil may well <laughs> want to interrupt me and, and tell me um, I've got things a little bit wrong. Um, I should just start by emphasising that absolutely the Digital Markets Act in, in the EU and the Digital um, Markets Unit um, in the UK um, are really seeking to do the same things. There has been an identification that a number of markets have really, uh, di the big digital markets have become very, very concentrated, that there's become around them the development of ecosystems so that market power gets spread from one core market to additional markets. And that, that has, these markets have been very, very innovative looking backward, but looking forward, there are real challenges to innovation both by competitors who are you know, increasingly struggling to compete against these giant firms or com compete on these giant firms. Oh. Okay, sorry. Um, and, uh, uh, and actually, if competitors can't innovate against those firms, their incentives to innovate are also going to be weaker because obviously you, you, you have an incentive to compete if you think you might be uh, you're facing a rival and if rivals can't compete against uh, compete against you you have less incentive to innovate we care about innovation that's really what this is all about um so i think there's broad consensus actually around the world um increasingly about those as issues what the debate is is about how you then address them um and um i would just uh, start off by saying that although I'm going to paint some differences between the EU and the UK regimes, there's even in what's proposed, there's a lot of similarity as well. So there's a process by which you pre-designate those firms that are going to be covered. And then there's a process by which rules are set for those firms, um, or, or, or there are rules already set for those firms. And then there is a process of enforcement of those firms. So there's a lot that is similar. Um, the differences are that in the EU, the DMA includes the rules in legislation. They're there on the face of the legislation. And the idea is that for the most part that they are self-executing. So they should be clear enough that the firms look at the rules, know what to do um, and comply. Um, there is then some room where there is a lack of clarity for regulatory dialogue, but there's a hope that um, as much as possible, the firms can work out what to do themselves. Um, in the UK, by contrast, the legislation is designed, and obviously the big difference is that we have the DMA coming down the tracks. We don't actually yet have um, the, the UK legislation, although we're very hopeful, and, and, and Neil can maybe talk about that. Um, but in the UK, the idea is that the legislation um, would provide an upfront framework with overarching objectives, but that then the digital markets unit under those uh, those objectives and those principles that would also be set out would develop um, bespoke uh, rules for the firms. Um, another, and so that would allow them to be more evidence-based. It would allow them to be more proportionate. Um, the upside of the EU is the legal clarity and the administrability, which I think 
is potentially a very big upside. The upside of the UK system is it's more bespoke and more evidence-based and more arguably more proportionate. Um, the risk is around administrability because actually there's you know a whole discussion about even what the rules are even before you start enforcing them. What is in, in, included is quite strict timelines that I think are very useful for kind of pushing the whole process forward and also setting some sort of expectations about how much evidence really is going to be required. I should just say one thing that I missed out. We didn't talk, uh, I didn't mention that one approach to dealing with these issues would be competition law. There's been a whole discussion about whether competition law, which we already have, would be sufficient in these markets. There has been, I think, a growing acceptance that although it has a very clear role to play, it is insufficient to address the issues. And one of the reasons for that, there are several reasons, one of the reasons is that it tends to take a very long time and require a very large amount of evidence and process to ever, ever get anywhere. One of the aims, therefore, of the new regime must be, if it's going to make a difference, to actually be more administrable and be more speedy. And that really is one of the challenges, how you get that speediness and administrability, but you don't lose out on due process and you don't lose out on proportionality. And basically, the UK and US uh, and EU are taking slightly different approaches to that. As I say, I don't think they'll be that different in practice, but we'll have to see. And the, the tech giants, by and large, I gather, prefer the DMU to the DMA, which I think probably tells you quite a lot. Um, and Neil, I'd love if you could lay out for us w what's happening with the DMU. We were in a certain amount of turmoil in, in, in terms of government and, and planning, obviously. So can, can you, what, what hints well, and clues uh, can you give us? Yeah, very happy to. So the DMU, Digital Markets Unit within the CMA, is up and running and is working away. Uh, um, indeed, the CMA have done some fantastic studies recently, including the mobile ecosystems, which is then enabled to feed into the EU um, DMA uh, before it was completed, which is kind of show uh, the benefit of uh, good research and, and proving where the issues are. In terms of the legislation, the Queen's speech, which seems quite a long time ago now, uh, committed the government to publish draft legislation uh, this session. Uh, that is still the intention. Uh, uh, my team are working very uh, quickly with our lawyers to draft the legislation uh, and uh, we'll publish it um, soon. Soon obviously being quite an elastic term in uh, political parliaments, uh, but it'll definitely be this session. Um, and as you said, the big tech firms have generally welcomed our approach, uh, but obviously we're still at quite a high level in the published material. Uh, so that's why we're very keen to have the draft legislation so that we can have the detailed discussion as to how we're actually implementing it. Uh, and as Amelia said, the approach is intended to be, we set conduct requirements, you know, certain behaviours we expect, uh, and then give the regulators the powers to point out to individual companies if they're not following those behaviours. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see how the two approaches, uh, what the benefit, I mean, Amelia's outlined uh, some of the differences. Uh, we'll be able to learn from each other, I hope, and what works well, because uh, I think by and large, we are aiming at the same things. Uh, I think the DMA may be slightly wider in scope than we're attending, 
but certainly the political narrative is in the UK is very much we want to be tech friendly, we want to stifle, we want to encourage innovation, and we don't want to uh, disen. Uh, encourage investment, whether it's from the big tech companies or innovators, uh, and too prescriptive legislation uh, will harm investment. So that's the kind of main philosophical difference as seen from the UK side. Um, Olivier, I just heard the phrase too prescriptive um, loud and clear. How, how would you describe the differences between the two, you know, the, the existing legislation and, and the, the sort of the intended um, scope of what's coming into being from the UK side? Well, I think indeed, I mean, as Amelias said it, the, uh, the problem mapping is the same. So that's good news. What we're targeting is the same. And it's not no, no surprise because I mean, it's grounded in 25 years of enforcement of convention policy in the EU. Um, so we, we know what is it they're doing. We know that uh, they continue to do it, although it was repeatedly, repeatedly sanctioned. And we know that if this happens, it's because it's profitable, because there is a time lag between the time and the necessary time you need to make an antitrust case and uh, and the speed at which network effects in the digital industry kill competition um, so it's always profitable whatever the fine and uh, so that i think is the basis and is the basis for the two uh, dmu and dma alike well then you have two basic choices i mean either you decide you um, you have something that you 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 build that's so the that's the dmu approach this basically the problem is you have not the same, but a bit similar timing issue as you may have in, in antitrust. You need to make your case, you need to make a case for each individual case, et cetera, et cetera. So that's more targeted. You can tailor it to the needs. It has a number of advantages, obviously. Uh, we chose to go from the other end of the spectrum which has upside, but also downsides. I mean, there's, you cannot uh, have all the goodies either way. Um, because our main point was, in more than 20 decisions over 25 years, we found that it's always the same. It's some form of leveraging, self-preferencing, and call it whatever. You have a market that controls access to other markets. And because of these network effects, economies of scale and scope, etc., it is invariably profitable to leverage your power in this market, either to extract rent or to monopolize the adjacent market or whatever. Uh, and you can do that because the impact of your practice is much, much faster than any antitrust. So the reaction to this is to say, well, listen, guys, we told you repeatedly, you know, you know that it, it will be sanctioned. But you still do it because it makes sense for you from a profit maximizing point of view. So from now on, it's outright prohibited. Uh, so the DMA is this at the core, it's not only this. So that's why it is competition law inspired, but it's not competition law. And also because uh, we took the opportunity to capture things that are more complicated to capture under pure competition law when you have to go through the old process of market definition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's really is the same problem definition, but approaching the, the problem solving from two completely different angles 
in a way, a bit of a, of a mirror, uh, really. So the downsides of our, uh, of our um, uh, way of doing things are the upside of the UK way and the other way around to, 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 to take it grossly. I think that's not, I agree with Amelia, that's not so much of an issue. Because um, the real problem for me would be if it would be, say, impossible or complicated for firms to comply with both sets of regulation. That would really be a problem. Uh, but for as long as uh, it is, uh, they're consistent in the spirit, so they're likely actually to give the same outcome substanti substantively, um, I, don't see, I don't see it being a problem. I think for us, but also for any other jurisdiction in the world, and uh, in particular the US, what really matters is that we are one of us doesn't go on a set of principles that is really widely different, so that firms, in order to comply with both sets of requirements, would need actually to adopt different strategies and s fragment the market in order to be able to do this. Th that, for me, would be the problem. It's not a risk I see at all between the DMU and the DMA. And it's, I don't think it is a realistic risk if you look at uh, what is on the table on the hill in Washington uh, with the US either. Well, thank you. And I think probably most people in this room you know, support the aims of, of both pieces of regulation. Um, that said, there are risks. I mean, it's, it's a complex business. They're new, um, new pieces of law. It's the, fir the, the first time it, th this has been done. Amelia, would you lay out what the, the risks are, um, what the potential, you know, if, if things go too far in um, a, 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 a wrong direction, if it's either too prescriptive, um, if, there are, if there are gaps between different nationalities. I mean, you know, China, is make, China is moving forward with, with, the, with these kind of regulations, also the US, as well as the, um, the EU and the UK and other countries. What do you think some of the risks are? I mean, just to get a sense of the stakes, you know, what, what, what do we, you know, what, 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 what's in jeopardy? So I think there's probably two risks. I mean, the one risk is just a risk with all of these areas of regulation, which is that they in some way fail in their core purpose in terms of their core purpose being to provide a framework in which innovation can really, and investment can really be effective. And that really is very genuinely the aim of, of, of what both, what we're all trying to do. But we could get it wrong. You know, we, we are doing our best to get it right. <laughs> but if we get that wrong, that would be, that would clearly be a, a, a big problem. I think the way to try and mitigate that risk is actually to be really careful to keep looking at how, we're, how what we're putting in place is working. What's the impact in the market? Are innovators coming in? Uh, is access um, to data, for example, actually being used by innovators? You know, I think, and we've, by talking to each other, we can learn from each other as well. So that's one risk generally. I think there is some risk, or I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad about Olivier's optimism, I think there is some risk of inconsistency across the jurisdictions um, where we ask for slightly different things. Again, I think we can mitigate that so far as we can by talking to each other. But there's, you know, I could imagine different jurisdictions just having little tweaks they want to make. 
Um, uh, sometimes that won't necessarily be a problem because I think there are very different costs for the firms of, um, of fragmentation depending on what the rule is about. Mm -hmm. So for example, if it's the rules about the terms and conditions on the App Store, that can probably be different in every jurisdiction. It may well be different in any, every jurisdiction anyway due to change differences in consumer law or, or whatever. Oh, sorry. If it's about interoperability or data portability provisions, which are very, very technical, um, and there's a big investment and big network effects, big, um, um, big, uh, big basic infrastructure issues, then if different jurisdictions may have different requirements, that's a much, much bigger issue. Um, so I think there is some risk there, but also some room for some divergence as long as we don't get divergence on the stuff that's really important. Great answer. I mean, I, I thought your point about to keep looking is, is really important. Um, I'd love to ask uh, Olivier, I mean, do, do you have mechanisms in place to make sure that you keep looking? What, what are your intentions in that regard? I mean, is there room to see things going a little bit awry and then to, to course correct? Yeah, um, two things. Well, first of all, I'm too prescriptive. You should keep in mind who's in scope. So, I mean, if it was a symmetric regulation uh, that applies to all the market, I would say, well, yeah, I, I w I'm worried. I mean, there's, there's a number of things maybe almost everything in the list in Article 5 and 6 that I wouldn't like to see uh, uh, being implementing for um, startups. Because of course, I mean, they have every right to self-preference in every way, etc. because that, that, that's the way they grow and they gain. So who is in scope? Only the very big animals with huge network effects and a long track record of having a monopolized market and stifled innovation. So now if you take these glasses and you look at the list in Article 5 and 6, I'm happy to discuss which of the provisions could prevent innovation. Because they're designed actually to allow innovators to survive. Uh, that's, that's the raison d'etre, that's the, the reason why they, they are there. So it is very prescriptive. And that's actually the reason why the scope is so narrow. You, you, will, you will not have uh, tens of companies in scope. And you should not have much of a surprise when you will see the list, actually. So, uh, the, uh, but, but there is a relationship between the two. Uh, and that's a kind of a side effect of our choice for what you call rightly self-executing provisions. So because it's so intrusive and so prescriptive, uh, we wanted it to be super clear what it is you can and cannot do or should do. And we wanted it to be limited to those companies for which there is no doubt at all. Now, to your question, because it's linked, of course, is the narrower you are, the more complicated it is to be future-proof. Because what you prohibit today or you mandate today maybe not so relevant, especially in this field, uh, in, in some years or months. 
Um, and a, a, a good part of the DMA regulation is about future-proofing. Uh, and that's also why, I mean, you shouldn't see the DMA in isolation. I mean, the DMA, essentially, why is it that we have chosen to have a joint task force between my colleagues of DigiConnect and, and, and us? This is because you should see it as a kind of a shared garden. Uh, so, in order to maintain that garden, you need to have regulatory uh, um, skills. Interoperability is, is a clear example. Uh, and, and of course, you, you have all a large aspect that has to do with fair trade regulations and, and the competition law. Um, but that's not enough, because if you just do this, you, you, you will miss part of the problem, which is that because of the regulation, you will displace part of the issue on the sides. Because they're smart. They will adapt. Um, so that means you need to adapt and coordinate your antitrust enforcement with your DMA enforcement. But you need also to adapt and coordinate your uh, regulatory enforcement on the DSA and the rest of the framework. And you need, of course, to coordinate in, uh, internationally as well. Um, and, and this, together with flexible methods to add or withdraw do's and don'ts from the regulation, in our view, is kind of ensuring this future proofing. Great. Um, I want to come on to the, the subject of designation in a couple of minutes. But Neil, I'd love to ask you, I mean, as you probably know, the, the US Secretary of Commerce has commented on the way in which the DMA um, really is targeting the, the US tech firms. Um, and, it, you know, I mean, th that's what you've just been laying out. We, you know, there is a kind of, I mean, she doesn't think that's so great. I mean, it, it's, you know, she would say it's discriminatory. I'd love to get your view on that. Um, is it is it really fair to be so you know completely focused on those companies and design the rules just to target them? Yes, I mean I think um, the key issue is we are agreed that it's the biggest firms that are the ones that are causing concern. They happen to be American, so it's not designed to be anti-American. I think. Um, there are some fundamental differences of approach uh, between the two regimes. I mean, perhaps because we've got a kind of uh, common law approach to uh, regulation rather than Napole Napoleonic code, we want to make sure that it's flexible based on precedent. Uh, our whole regime, uh, and the devil will be in the detail, is uh, to avoid the pitfalls that Olivier is talking about by having behaviours. Uh, behaviours can be applied to new tech uh, new behavior or new actions by uh, designated firms and so not need to re-legislate. Uh, it will be interesting when we publish to see the extent to which the big tech firms say, hang on a minute, we don't like this amount of flexibility and we actually want more detail. Um, but, you know, the, the dialogue we've had with them so far uh, is encouraging. Um, and another point that Olivier reminded me of is that our approach is very much competition law. This is a, an extra layer on a handful of companies in the competition space. We have separate regulation for online safety um, and you know, the, the regulators will talk to each other, but it's not like uh, the commission where different services are comparing notes and, and making sure it's all joined up. There are different regimes and we don't want the competition regulator interfering with a company's business for concerns about uh, safety issues when there's a clear regime for doing that. And uh, again, sometimes have to 
uh, make clear in those discussions that this is all about competition, uh, not about uh, other, other systems. So uh, I think what the most fascinating thing we would see what uh, the Americans adopt They've got a choice of two models, uh, given the uh, stasis in Congress. It may take them a few years to reach a conclusion, by which time they might have uh, two experiments to, uh, to model and uh, inform uh, the best regime. But I think, as Olivier said at the very start, uh, I think the companies will change behavior because uh, we're sending them the same signals via different routes, uh, and it will be in their interests to move quickly. Uh, but we don't want to spice for the innovation by the big tech firms as well as the small guys. Could, could I just come in on, on, on that? I was just going to say that, I mean, obviously the US does also have draft legislation in this space that does something very, very similar. And actually, if anything is um, more prescriptive even um, uh, than the, the EU regulation, which I think is very, very interesting. It hasn't gone through, but I think it there is still potential. It's still under, um, it's still being discussed. I think a lot depends on the, the next elections, as I understand. Um, but I think the other thing to highlight is in that regulation, it again does the, has, uh, has a process of pre-designation is very quantitative. And the five firms that would be quantitative design, quantitatively designated are the five firms that you first think of, which are all American. I would also highlight that when the Secretary of Commerce wrote to the commission, my understanding is, and you probably know this better than me, that, um, Elizabeth Warren then wrote to her and said, stop, stop. They're doing exactly what we should be doing. No, no, um, for, for sure. How is the designation going, Olivia? I think that's happening right now. Is that is that correct? And is it? And, no, it's and not. <laughs> are you are you going to? And isn't there a risk that a lot more firms will come into the net? Um, Airbnb, Booking. dot com. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, maybe maybe the basics of, of designation is not exactly right now. It's in, actually in six months' time. Okay. But, uh, um, Providers of what we call core uh, services may be designated uh, because you can be a provider of core service, but you're not a gatekeeper. Uh, uh, so they may be designated, and the first way is by a set of criteria, quantitative. You meet them or you don't. If you meet them, you're provisionally designated, but you can you can say, well, okay, well. It's by chance that I'm meeting all these criteria, but I'm actually not a gatekeeper. And then there is a procedure to, and eventually it might be that we say, okay, well, you're right. Actually, we, we were wrong, the stupidness. Um, so that, that, that may happen. There is a process for this. Uh, let's see whether it happens or not in, real, in reality. And the other way around, I mean, we tried to mitigate the, you know, the cliff effects of any such system by having what we call a qualitative designation. Well, then, of course, it's more demanding on us because then we do have to make our case that although that firm or that group doesn't meet our, our thresholds, uh, sorry, that's my president. Uh, so although it doesn't, uh, we we should designate them. So the bar in in terms of uh, burden of proof will be no doubt higher for this. Uh, 
That may happen, for example, when you're borderline meeting the, the criteria. Or where you meet two out of the three uh, and we believe you should be designated. But whatever the, 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 the situation, it will be more demanding on, on us. Um, those that are designated, one way or the other, can always contest the designation. There is a process again for this. At the end of the day, we can end up in court, and, uh, and the court will decide. But that is for six months from now. Once they are designated, then they have also a certain uh, time to uh, adapt. But, but the truth is, at least the usual suspects are already in contact with us. And one last one, maybe, to say that um, I completely agree with what Niall said. It mean, most of them, in my view, not all. I don't think our, our designation process will lead to have only in scope uh, U.S. companies. But uh, I would love to have only Europeans, <laughs> <laughs> that, that including the U.K. Uh, I mean, that that would mean we have been more successful than we have been in uh, in that in that area. I mean, they've been very, very successful. They've become largely dominant worldwide in their respective fields. Uh, and that's, that's how they ended up being in scope. Nothing else. That's a generous admission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Amelia, can I ask you to talk about enforcement and um, the, you know, how, uh, is, are there the correct staff numbers, the skill sets? Um, is, is this going to get enforced well, both in the UK and, and the DMA? Well, we, um, it, sorry. In your opinion. <laughs> in the UK, we already have a shadow digital markets unit in within the Competition and Markets Authority, which is reasonably um, staffed already, but uh, has an expectation of more staff all, all contingent on what our new chancellor, uh, <laughs> or various decisions actually, but including what the, where the new chancellor goes. Um, but hopefully uh, we will have the uh, the people to do the in the enforcement i should just emphasize that this being regulation it shouldn't actually be as enforcement based as um as as antitrust is actually if you look at financial regulation for example if you look at the fca they have many many more people involved in supervision which is like the regulatory dialogue bit where you go and talk to firms and you say, this is what we expect. Why aren't you doing it? Can we talk to you about how you can do it? Can, you know, you do a lot of that process and only when you don't get anywhere through that process do you end up in enforcement. So it's not obvious that we, I think the CMA should have enough people, but it's not obvious that they'll all actually be doing enforcement. My hope would be that they very rarely <laughs> do enforcement. We'll, ha we'll absolutely have to see. Um, in the EU, I know that there's, um, uh, well, I think it's really for Olivier, I know that there's um, some concerns out there that there aren't going to be enough people involved. But of course, what the EU can do is it can draw on expertise and people from all of the member states, national competition authorities as well, who are able to do investigations. So I think if the EU pulls together, um, I'm very hopeful in, in that area as well. There's some feeling that, that, the, that it would have been good to um, fund the DMA with a levy on the tech firms, um, that, that, you know, that was kind of a missed opportunity. Do, do you think that's a possibility in future, potentially, if, if, the, if the resources prove um, some, you know, just not, not quite there. We, we have considered it. Um, 
I'm not a lawyer, so don't ask me for which legal reason it, wa it was apparently more complicated than from the DSA. Um, and it was already complicated enough, which is why the decision was taken not to, to pursue that. Whether it could be revived at a later stage, maybe. But just on staffing, I mean, we, we are in the process of setting our joint task force. Uh, my friend Roberto Viola has uh, already announced uh, the way it will work and has actually decided to try to take all the synergies possible between DMA and DSA. That's the way he has structured it. Um, so the people that will do the DMA, the direct part of the DMA, so the connect part, uh, are also going to work on the DSA, which I think is very good. Uh, both because it needs to ensure a smooth interaction between the two, uh, and uh, um, because it, uh, it maximizes economies of scope and scale. Um, and we're going to do the same. Um, so, you, you, I mean, you're right, Amelia, we, we will need to move to a, a type of enforcement with our friends in the national competition authorities that is different in kind of what we've been doing so far in Article 101 and 102. And that is because you have the DNA <coughs> where we have exclusive power of decisions for very obvious reasons, uh, but they can help in the investigation, they can help in the uh, ex post enforcement of the decision in courts, in national courts. Um, but they also have 101 and 102, just like us, and they also have the national competition laws, and they also have, for some of them, specific dedicated national laws. So all these together, I think when you, when you look at any given practice or any given new investigation, I'm not sure you will know right from the beginning that what you will find is an infringement to the DMA or one or two. Actually, in all likelihood, you will have some ideas which you will not know for sure, and you may end up with a bit of this and a bit of that. And it will be important, in my view, that we design jointly what is our enforcement strategy. How do we, which cards are the best suited, and how, how in which sequence do we want to play our cards? And that's a collective decision which we will have to make with the colleagues from national competition authorities. Um, and uh, uh, in my view, this is how we will maximize the interaction between um, 102 in particular and the DMA. Because one of the specificities of our approach, because we chose to go narrow self-executing, that means quite a lot is likely to end up into antitrust enforcement. Because what is not exactly what was prohibited or mandated and is not caught by the anti-circumvention uh, provisions that we have in DMA, and if they're smart, it will not be, uh, you will end up to have to deal with it with one or two. And that's why we have this system that allows us then to feed back into the DMA. So, well, okay, fine. I mean, we, we nailed you with one or two that time. But this is exactly what we want, don't want to see, so that will add up to the list. The flip side to, to thinking about y your um, resources for enforcement is thinking about the vast armies um, available to, to the, the companies that are being regulated. Well, yeah, we're, so used you know, we're used to that. Yeah, I, mean, I can imagine. You know, uh, so just to finish on this, we're, we're setting up our directorate and uh, uh, for DMA enforcement. 
that will team up with the people that uh, Roberto Viola is uh, into this joint enforcement. So one single team per, uh, per case, one single decision, uh, not kind of competing views, etc. Uh, so a real task force. We did that already in 2003 for the telecom regulatory framework. It worked very well. Um, and um, we, we will line up the two DMA units, so really focused on the DMA. And for the reasons I've just explained, an antitrust unit that will do those cases that are closest to the DMA, because it is important that the person, first of all, to keep this coordination, and secondly, that whoever is going to lead this is able to go in the ECN with the two hats, because this is precisely where the, the trade-offs will need to be done. Fantastic. Um, so just one last question before we move on to Q&A, and maybe we could just um, be fairly brief in responses to this. So, I mean, the, the, the technology giants themselves, I mean, what they're worried about, and they're very worried um, because this, you know, this is going to have a huge effect on them. They're worried about legal clarity. You know, is there going to be enough um, sort of certainty and, and um, consistency to be, able to, to, to be able to invest? They're worried about their own competition with each other because, of course, as, as The Economist, among others, has written, there's an awful lot more kind of fighting between them over different bits of the tech industry. So they're worried that these rules, these, all these new rules are going to sort of affect that, that sort of game between them. And they're also really, um, you know, worried that they're going to have to deal with um, the, the E, the DMA, the DMU, and then also national cases, you know, so from Germany and France and so on. So they're obviously really concerned and worried and, and complaining behind the scenes, um, may, maybe not in public. So w what, from your side, um, Neil, Olivier, what, what are you expecting their kind of game plan to be in the years to come? Are you expecting them to launch lots of legal challenges to, to sort of not cooperate terrifically well? I mean, obviously that, you know, each of these companies has a, has a different strategy, but tell, mm -hmm. tell us what you can about that, maybe just a minute each so we can move on to, to Q&A if you would. Yeah, certainly. I mean, anyone who deals with these companies know they have very different personalities, which is quite the entertaining <laughs> part of uh, <laughs> dealing with them. So some will be very cooperative, some will have 15 lawyers in every meeting uh, and fight the regulator every way. So, I mean, I think it is that, uh, is that simple. It'll be very different. And that's partly why we're, uh, it may be less clear at the outset, but if you have a separate set of rules for each of them, those that cooperate and are, you know, get the, get the, what we're aiming for will have a smoother ride from the regulators than those who are fighting at every step of the way. So that gives us more flexibility. We'll see uh, how that works out in practice. Um, but I think uh, surely more competition between these five is what we're after. So uh, uh, if the regulations work properly, both in Europe and in the UK, we will see more competition, less uh, carving up the market between them, if that's what's happened. Um, and I would say, going back to my earlier point, that if you want a, an example of kind of why our approach is different, uh, look at our subsidy control regime now that we've left the EU. Uh, there'll be an announcement on Thursday about timing of the implementation of our Subsidy Control Act. But rather than having a prescriptive list of rules, uh, which you have to get prior clearance before you give state aid, uh, in the UK we now have a system where there's a set of principles, the same as the EU, plus one extra. Uh, we have a more transparent database to lower levels of thing that, than the EU, but you publish that and then provided no one sues you within six weeks, you're off. 
so the onus is on the subsidy giver, and it's much more, uh, you know, less state involved uh, than the EU approach. And I think you'll see more and more of that as we uh, wean ourselves off uh, the European way. That's not to say the European way is wrong. We just choose to do it differently. Um, and, and I think that's a, that applies in spades uh, to competition law. Thank you. Neil, you've answered that so fully. I think, it, I think that was a, a great answer to the question. So I think we might go to um, Q&A more broadly now. Um, uh, yeah, so there are roving microphones out there. If, uh, if you could wait for those to get to you. I think I might need one myself at some point. There's a very key difference between the CMA and you regulators in this market. And I think you mentioned it right at the beginning, which is innovation. The CMA doesn't have quite the same problem with innovation as you do. And innovation in uh, high-tech markets is very often about knowing more about people than the next competitor. Is the retention between privacy and innovation and if so, how do the regulators intend to deal with it? Sorry. There may be. Um, maybe from the outset, I, I'm a firm believer in, you know, strict adequation between goals and instruments. So competition law and competition enforcement is here to protect competition, not privacy. Privacy is super important, but you have rules for that. What may happen indeed is that a uh, combination of data or what have you uh, is what allows you to leverage some power and, uh, and uh, uh, do what we call an abuse of dominant position. And if this is so, we will happen to protect competition and privacy at the same time, but not with the goal of protecting privacy, this is simply because were interesting in, in, in protecting competition. There is, of course, a fine line, and there is humble literature uh, about what is uh, an efficiency and whether it is an efficiency offense or not. Um, what is clear, at least, is that for as long as it would contravene privacy laws, it couldn't be an efficiency. So the gray area is before that. Uh, and I'm afraid there is no other answers than case by case, because that, that is very likely to be case specific. Samini, would you like to address that? I was just going to add, I mean, I think that generally, I don't know if it's working now, hopefully, uh, generally, I think that competition and privacy can absolutely work hand in hand. I mean, firms actually very often compete on privacy to give better privacy even than the GDPR requires. So I think that absolutely they can be they they can be absolutely synergistic. They can also be in be in tension. Um, and I was just going to mention the um, CMA uh, commitments process on the Google Privacy Sandbox, which is an example where the CMA is actually seeking to address exactly that tension. So that's a situation where Google wants to get rid of third-party cookies because of privacy concerns. People don't like 
um, them. Um, but if they do that, then there are some risks to competition in the advertising market. Um, and so the CMA is working with Google actually in a very collaborative way to try and find the best route of achieving the privacy benefits while minimizing any comp and hopefully removing any competition harm. So that's an area where there is a tension, potentially at least, but if you're smart about it, hopefully we can, we can uh, at least mitigate the tension. Thank you. We have a question at the back here. Um. My name is Oles Andrychuk, Professor of Law, Newcastle. Um, my question, first of all, thank you, thank you very much for organizing this event. It, it's really remarkable. I have one question uh, for Olivier, if I may. You mentioned this magic word exclusivity, and the original version of the DMA did indeed, was indeed, exclu and did in, indeed envisaged the exclusive competence of the Commission to enforce it. Now, with the final version, we have Article 42, uh, talking about the, the representative actions, um, doesn't doesn't it open the door for this kind of elements of third-party litigation, vexatious litigation? We know that for right reasons, the the the, the mechanism of the DMA is designed to be kind of low-hanging fruit for public enforcement, and. And the Commission, for right reason, probably didn't include any reference to private enforcement in the original version. Now we have some kind of hybrid version of it. Can you elaborate on this, please? Thank well, you. yes, I can. Well, partly there was nothing on, on, on national competition authorities either, uh, which was not necessarily a good thing, and was partly because we were required to produce the, the rough legislation so quickly that we thought this is really an issue on which member states will uh, will be willing to to uh, uh, craft it and uh, and therefore wh whatever we will do will be changed so let's put nothing and uh, leave it to the to the legislative process which worked well on private action well you know the legislators are al always right um, I'm a civil servant, so I'm implementing civil legislation. Um, so if they thought it was important to open the, the way for follow-up private enforcement, they were right. And it's actually, on first principles, difficult to object. Uh, because consumers, uh, or actually third-party customers, may be armed by these practices, just the same way they're armed by competition infringement. So it's difficult to object at the principal level to the possibility of, uh, of private enforcement, in my view. Whether this will make it any easier is a different uh, subject. <laughs> Andrea, please. Thank you very much. Uh, I might be cheeky and see if I get in two questions. So I think the first one is for Olivier and the second one is for Amelia. So, um, Olivier, I think, well, certainly I absolutely agree that we'll know what good looks like when competition emerges in a series of these markets that we might say at the moment are not competitive. But that can take quite a long time. So I don't know if you or your colleagues have in mind any sort of interim signs 
that you're looking for in order to say to yourself, this is starting to look good and moving in the right direction. And then the second question for, for Amelia was really, um, and and this all comes from a perspective of me being very supportive of of, of regulation in this in this context, that I think you can see in other regulated regimes that you end up with problems of regulatory capture. And, you know, is that something we should be worried about? And if so, what can the regulator, which in this case might be might be the CMA, do to sort of guard against that? Just to add that we're coming up to time, so please do um, respond fairly quickly if possible. Neil, would you like to take that one? Um, well, regulatory capture is uh, um, uh, a classic and uh, uh, close collaboration uh, could also be by the companies, could also be seen as uh, um, regulatory capture by their uh, competitors. So I think it's really hard to judge. Um, I think the level of political scrutiny on this is going to make sure uh, the regulator, I'm sure it will be the same in the EU, uh, don't get captured. They're going to have to demonstrate <laughs> that, they're, uh, that they are independent. I think the pressure is more going to be the other way, is to prove to the companies that the regulator is, is here to help, not constantly second guess them, and is just enforcing uh, proper behaviour. Uh, I think that will be the harder thing because a lot of it will be done in private um, uh, necessarily and uh, those who are not privy to the conversations will assert that they've been captured uh, when they won't have been, they, or hopefully they will not have been uh, and certainly parliamentarians will be on their case very quickly if they are captured. Amelia? Um, I, I, I agree with that and I, I, so far, at least at the CMA, I've, I've not sent any risk of, of regulatory capture, but I do think one of the key solutions to it may actually be one of the key solutions um, to the other question as well, which is transparency. So I think being really, really transparent about what the regulator is doing um, to the firms, but also to third parties, to consumer organisations. And I think um, that's clearly helpful for regulatory capture, I think. Um, I think it could also be helpful um, for considering how the regulations are doing, because actually I think that what you can do as, the, as a regulator is you can ask the parties to be providing actually basic information. How many people have taken you up on this, this data access provision and then you put that in the public domain and then if it's not true people will very quickly come and tell you it's not true so i think the more you can do these things very transparently and the more information you can get out there um the the better you deal with both of those questions fantastic olivia do you want to add something quickly there no just on the other question because i think on capture the we have a very poor track record in the in DG competition at, be, at being captured, so uh, <laughs> I'm not too worried. Um, now the, your other question, it's interesting. It's, I think it's extremely. Uh, the answer is no. In uh, in short, uh, because it's it's really extremely difficult, uh, and I, I maybe maybe it's laziness, maybe, but it's you know. With everything we have to do, trying to try to frame a conceptual framework to say, okay, well, if we end up there, what will we do? We'll see. Uh, we'll continue to. That's why it's so important that we enforce 102 very close to the DMA. It's because one will inform the other permanently, and uh, and at some point, if we are in a situation where we're not where we would like to be, or we are actually where we would like to be, it will simply emerge. 
trying to second guess, foresee in advance. I mean, I think we have uh, every chance to be wrong. Uh, it will take uh, resources. We have enough resources, but we do not have too much, really. So, uh, so I'd like to focus them on, on enforcement. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I thought there were three really striking things that came out of that discussion. We covered an awful lot. But Olivier, your comment that you hope that in future um, the DMA will be applying to European companies, um, I think that's a really good thing to aim for. Neil, your point about the tech giants having 15 lawyers in the room and the ones that kind of co- you know, are less cooperative might have a harder time, that, that certainly sounded like an expression of power to me. Um, and Amelia, I thought your point about let's just keep looking um, at how things are going is a, is a very wise recommendation. Thank you so much um, to our panellists um, for your participation and, and discussion. And thank you to the audience for the questions and, and listening. Thank you. Thank you.